Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everyone to episode number 24 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. We're calling it, Should I Build a Group Practice and Why? As you can well imagine, I get this question, what I feel like is on an hourly basis. And finally, the light bulb went off that, you know what? Maybe we should record a podcast about this subject. So I'm gonna slice and dice that question on whether or not you should build a group practice and more importantly, why you should if you decide to or why you shouldn't if you decide you don't want to. It's all gonna be a, an action-packed episode for sure on the podcast today. Get your pad and pen ready, maybe some popcorn and definitely a cup of Mila coffee. We're ready to roll on the podcast. Thanks again, everybody, for joining me on the show today. Again, we're calling this episode, Should I Build a Group Practice? And more importantly, why? As I mentioned in the introduction, I do get this question frequently um, from a lot of different people at a lot of different stages of their careers. Uh, And it's it's a worthy question, but it's a question that all too often has a unique answer based on um, that the person asking it and where they are at, at what stage in life and what their expectations are. And as many of you have heard me say in times past, I feel like I could answer every question I'm asked with the the refrain, it depends. And I hate saying that, but it's the God's honest truth. And really for me to answer a lot of the questions that I'm asked, I have to ask questions back. And as you can well imagine, that also gets pretty challenging in a podcast format, talking to myself. So I'm not gonna confuse the heck out of you today, but I am gonna try to slice and dice this a little bit. And the question about, well, Perrin, what do you think I should do? Should I build a group practice? Tell me why you think that. It really is much more than a superficial answer. And it really starts with where you are right now and what do you have? And, And what I mean by that is where is your current practice or if you've got maybe two locations, where are both of your practices? And what are you trying to achieve? Um, how fully developed are they? Um, or, or is your solo practice? Um, do you feel like you've maximized the um, potential of both your patient base and your capacity of your current facility? Or is there still um, some room to grow into it? Could be days and hours. Uh, could be more um, productivity out of your given set of hours that you're uh, willing to work at this stage. Uh, have you brought in an associate or a junior partner, even part-time, to start to replace some of your clinical capacity? If you're just a one-person show without an associate, 
it gets a little challenging to recommend to people to take on the risk to add the next location. Because ultimately, adding additional locations is going to add a terrific amount of complexity. It's just harder to manage growth when you're not present. But also, you haven't proved the concept to yourself and your team that you can recruit an associate and coach that associate up to some level of productivity. The next thing I would say is if you're in a solo location and you feel like it's successful, however you define success, it could be financially, could be the type of dentistry you do, could be the quality of life you have, the number of hours, the work-life balance, you know, whatever you, you wouldn't be asking the question, should I build a group practice? If you didn't feel like you were successful right now, at least I hope you wouldn't be. I mean, nobody, let's face it, I hope nobody's out there to, to scale and replicate failure, right? I mean, that would be a pretty bad business proposition. So I'm going to assume that you've built some degree of confidence and some degree of success that you're proud of in your current location. Um, and, and you're wondering if there's something more. And that's natural. And, and I would take that one step further to say, evaluate, ha have a hard conversation with yourself and evaluate where you are. This, I sometimes refer to this as the face in the mirror test. For those of you who've spent some time with me, you've probably heard me say that phrase before. The face in the mirror test um, is a, a, a phrase that when you look at yourself in the mirror, maybe when you're brushing your teeth or for, for the male audience out there, if you're shaving in the morning, or maybe it's just females, you're putting on makeup or something like that, but you're looking at yourself in your eyes and it's tough to hide from yourself. And at that point, you kind of have to ask yourself, what do I, what type of practice do I have? Do I, do I feel like there's something more? Have I taken this one as far as it can go? Um, and I'm still wanting to, to grow my skills as a leader, as a clinical dentist, as an entrepreneur. Uh, and do I have what it takes in terms of commitment to take the next step and take on the risk to do it? If you are later stage, of your career. Um, and that's also an open-ended reference because late stage these days can mean just about anything. But, you know, I would say if you're, if you're in your late fifties to early sixties and you're contemplating retirement in the coming years, it becomes a little bit, um, challenging, I think, to justify taking the risk and taking on more debt to do it, um, when you haven't done it up to this point. If you're mid-career, whatever that means, late 30s, mid 40s, early 50s, somewhere in that, that window, that, that prime earning year type of a, a window, you really have to evaluate the risk of growth and further debt with the quality of life that you've built and the lifestyle that you have. You've heard us talk a lot about uh, the concept of income versus wealth. If you own a, a solo practice and you are the only uh uh, owner and operator in that business, um, I would gather that you make a healthy amount of income that's derived from clinical services, and you more than likely have a high lifestyle that's geared to that income. Hey, we're Americans at the end of the day. We like to spend what we make. I'm kind of guilty of that myself. So I'm no different in that, in that level. But if you are going to build uh, a multi-location group what you're going to find is that you have to have the discipline to plow cash back into the business for growth purposes 
and not take all the cash out of the business for income purposes and lifestyle purposes, essentially. And I think that's really important for you to evaluate before you take on the debt obligation to do it and take on the risk involved with it. So how does your personal lifestyle impact the business that you have now and how might it impact the business you think you're going to, to build in the future? And you may decide that you are perfectly content and very happy owning a successful solo practice. And there's just not a compelling reason to take on the risk to, to add more locations. That being said, those who are, um, let's call it mid-career and younger, um, maybe under the age of 50 or say 55 and younger, I'm just taking a broad brush here. But for those who plan to be in the world of dentistry for another decade uh, or more, I think you have to, to be eyes wide open, not only about the business that you have and, and the level of success you've been able to create, but more importantly, how the industry is changing around you. Um, and this is something that um, I, I worry about a little bit because I have a lot of dentist friends, colleagues who do own successful solo practices that are, I'll call them mid-career um, and they've created great practices that are driven off of their wonderful skill sets, um, their tremendous personalities. There's a lot of what I would call provider loyalty in those businesses and for a lot of different reasons. That being said, we've all experienced a lot of change um, in the, uh, the movement to consolidation over the last decade. And I think that's only going to accelerate in the coming years. And there are a lot of different drivers for that. So if I'm a solo practice owner of a successful business right now, and I'm looking at the next 10 to 15 to 20 years of my career, I've got to really think about a lot of things because the probably what's made my practice successful up to this point is not going to be able to guarantee its success for another 10 to 20 years. And that's a little bit of an alarming proposition. These types of tidal wage, wave shifts and changes don't happen overnight. They're very gradual in time. But if you're not aware of them, and if you don't have your, your eyes looking over the horizon, you can get caught out uh, and through forces beyond your control, see the, um, uh, the success, the general success of your business start to diminish in the coming years. So what are some of the changes I'm talking about? And I'm going to share five of them that, that we discuss with a lot of our clients uh, when they come and spend a day with me. And, and certainly uh, Aiden DeWalker and I speak about these in our consulting program a, a good bit as we talk about the businesses that people are endeavoring to build and kind of their drivers behind it. But so when we talk about you know, the way the industry shifts, um, there, are hand, there are a number of, of drivers of that. But the probably the five that we talk about most often are, for one, payer reimbursement. And specifically, I'm talking about insurance um, and PPO payer reimbursement here. The ADA has done a lot of uh, studies on this. They have a, an insurance index, I think is what they call it. Uh, and they've, they've studied this pretty thoroughly uh, over the last probably two decades or decade and a half or so. Uh, and those private dental insurance reimbursement indices that they follow on a state-by-state -state basis 
um, have really showed a pretty dramatic decline. And one of the statistics that we share in, in one of our discovery day sessions is that between 2006 and 2016, that 10-year that run, uh, that index declined by about 17% with only three states showing a positive gain in that time. Uh, and if you are an owner of a, a solo practice um, and it's fee-for-service, you may be able to weather the storm. Um, the question would be, can you weather the storm for 10 to 20 years? I, I, that would be a big question in my mind. The vast majority of the practices out there are not fee-for-service. They may have a small component of full-fee paying, cash-paying patients, but the vast majority of them take some level of insurance reimbursement. And, and the way that that's declining for solo practices um, is, I would say, fairly gradual but consistent. Uh, and that's a challenge in a rising cost environment. If you have a significant revenue decline over a period of time with rising costs, that impacts owner income directly. And I'm sure there are a lot of people in the audience who can relate to, to the challenges around uh, owning a, a solo practice, and, and that is significantly one of them. The second thing uh, is that that rising student debt burden that we've been talking about for quite a while. And again, ADA, amongst many others, have done a lot of studies on this. Um, but in 2019, dental school graduates averaged almost $250,000 in student loan debt. And that's if mom and dad paid for undergrad. And, you know, this is a scenario where you look at those that are somewhat new uh, clinicians into the, the profession, those maybe under the age of 35, less than 31% of them own their own practice. And, and there are a lot of reasons for that, but student loan debt is a primary catalyst for that. When you think about coming into the workforce, carrying that level of debt, plus some additional undergrad debt uh, or credit card debt, maybe they're about to get married or have recently gotten married, maybe they've recently had a child bought their first home, finally bought a new car. It's debt on top of debt, on top of debt, on top of debt. And the reason that's important, again, is if I am, uh, if, if I am a mid-career dentist or, or maybe even younger, and I'm thinking about my solo practice and, and the level of success that I've been able to create, if I'm confident I can maintain that level of success for the next, say, 10 years or so, the next question becomes, well, who's going to buy the my, my practice at the end of that period of time? Uh, and if it's, you can or make a good case, if it's too successful, you may price yourself out of a, a bank-funded uh, young associate type of a buyer market and, in, and directly into um, a strategic or a financial buyer type of a scenario. And, and I think the student loan debt component uh, is, is one that we're going to be living with uh, for probably a, a good while now. But it is, it is surely a catalyst for consolidation. Um, and, and we see it all over the place in terms of the groups we work with and some of the enterprise level groups that we work with. Demographics is another shift. And, and I think I read recently, um, and I can't remember where, it's been posted a couple of different um, places, but I believe in... The, uh, the class that enrolled um, in 2020 for the first time ever saw 51% of female enrollment. Um, and we've seen female, uh, the, the percentage the, of the pie, if you will, of dental school enrollment um, really shifting significantly toward the female side um, of the gender. And you see the impact of that 
um, in the the changing demographics of the profession overall. Fem- females make up a, a a growing segment of that. That's uh, a significant minority um, uh, of the profession overall. And and a lot of those females do uh, want uh, a work life balance. Uh, and I think it's important to be able to size that up. That if you're going to build a group, you really need to have a way to attract female associates that become female partners. Um, and uh, I don't want to say cater to that gender, but just be eyes wide open about the fact that there are going to be a lot more female dentists around going forward. And, and overall, that's a good thing. My wife is an ophthalmologist, so it's not too different for our family household is, is what I'm describing for a lot of our dentist colleagues. But that change in demographics obviously shifts the um, uh, the tide a little bit as it relates to growing group practices out there as well. Uh, private equity is a tremendous driver um, uh, in our world. They have been for the last over the last decade or so. That's not going away. Many of you have heard me say that uh, the healthcare sector overall uh, is always in the top three investment criteria from private equity groups. It's been that way for decades on end. And dentistry right now is arguably the most advantageous healthcare market, healthcare services market uh, for private equity to um, uh, to be interested in. And I think they are part of our our present. They're going to be part of our future for a good while to come. The same thing can be said that I believe that the the returns that we're seeing from our clients that uh, exit their business or find an equity capital partner uh, are, are quite advantageous. And I think those will hold up for a while, too. The last driver of consolidation that I, I think is important to, to be aware of if you're a, a solo practice operator is what I'm calling consumerism. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that the younger millennial set um, uh, overall tends to make healthcare decisions the way they do uh, purchasing decisions of almost everything else. Uh, and that is around convenience and price transparency. So I'm 50 years old. I'll be 51 at the end of this year. And I know my dentist personally. Um, I understand his clinical skill set because I used to work for Patterson and we got to um, you know, participate in some sales opportunities around clinical technology like CIRAC and Conebeam and some stuff like that. And so you start to learn uh, who has quality skills over those who don't, who who seeks additional clinical education and expands their skill set and everything like that. And he's an excellent dentist uh, from what his colleagues say of him. I'm not one to judge anybody's crown prep one from another. Don't get me wrong. But I do network enough with people in the local community and, and so many hold my personal dentist in high regard. He and I have a, a good personal relationship. Um, and, and I know him and have known him for a long time. I have no idea what he charges for a profi or an exam or a pan or bite wings or anything else for that matter. And it doesn't matter to me because I'm not going to leave his practice, whether my insurance changes, whether he changes his fees or anything else. I have a personal relationship with him. And that's the way I made that decision a decade ago. That's that mindset that I just described for me being a Gen Xer at 51 is significantly different than the younger uh, set of the population across the board. 
And the reason that that's a concern for me, as we talk about the profession of dentistry and owning a solo practice, is that if you're a solo business owner and you were the only dentist in that practice, it's really challenging for you to work 60 hours a week. Let's face it, none of us want to do that. But if more of the population out there is starting to access healthcare and dental services specifically after hours, meaning after 5 p.m. or before hours, meaning before 8 a.m. or on a Saturday, adding those days and hours time uh, of time blocks is incredibly challenging if you are an owner of a practice and you are the only dentist working in that practice. And I think the ability to open up days and hours of availability certainly when you have an associate, but also when you have more than one location is a really um, compelling reason to to um, uh, start to consider a group practice if it's the right time and place for you, um, that you're able to access a different segment of the population from a potential patient uh, aspect of things. So again, we talk about the trends in the industry and the, the five that I alluded to are declining payer reimbursement, increasing student loan debt, shifting demographics, specifically more to uh, the female uh, side of the the gender equation, uh, and private equity being a driver, and then the shifting behavioral uh, mindset, buyer behavior, essentially, into more of a consumerism type of a mindset. Those five really are things you have to be aware of if you are going to continue to operate a successful solo practice. Um, and if you can solve for those and you can create a value proposition with some level of differentiation in a commodity type world, then yeah, I think being a solo practice uh, owner um, has a lot of merits um, and, and hopefully you would feel confident about your, um, the ability to sustain your level of success. On the other hand, if you are mid-career and younger and you're thinking about, well, I have a successful solo practice, but where where am I going to end up? Like, what do the next, you know, I, I probably know what the next five years look like, but ten years and beyond, what does that look like? Um, as as a clinician, as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, as a potential partner in a multi location group, it may be that your best uh, strategy of defense. Uh, is to grow to a larger size that creates literally a bigger boat. Uh, And a bigger boat could be two or three or four locations, or it could be growing beyond four locations and centralizing administrative services in a management company and ending up with eight to 10 to 15 locations. Um, Suffice to say, there's a lot of different risk that goes on with all of that. and And it takes a significant level of commitment that is different in all of that that I just mentioned. And I think if you're going to to take an honest look, the face in the mirror test at you as the business owner and the business you've created and say, okay, is now the the right time for me to to grow into a multi-location group? There's a way to do that methodically um, with hopefully a, a level of what I'll call risk mitigation. The biggest risk, obviously, is taking on more debt to do it. Welcome to the club. (laughs) Everybody does, uh, and it can create uh, some sleepless nights. 
um, and, and some trying times. But I think uh, if you're going to go down the road of adding a second location um, or, you know, having a, a five-year outlook to say, I want to end up with four locations, no centralization of services, but, you know, uh, be able to derive some level of passive income from associates and, and minority partners who work for me and work with me, then I think you can have a, uh, what I would call a methodical and to a degree controllable growth strategy that doesn't over lever yourself with debt and lead to a scenario where uh, you feel like you're only working to pay off the loans. That's a miserable place that, that um, none of us want to see anybody in the audience end up. But I got to be candid with you. I, I talk with a lot of people who find themselves in that very scenario. And again, some of the work that we do in our consulting program is to, to possibly shore up the core business and, and unwind some of the, the trouble that uh, people have gotten themselves into too quickly and then lay out a more uh, methodical path for growth in the coming years. There's a way to do that. Um, it's not rocket science, but I think you have to have um, a dose of reality about what your growth strategy is going to be, how much you're willing to commit and, and take on the risk in terms of debt, what your role in the business is going to be, uh, and, and certainly what your income expectation is along the way. And are you, are you building the business for exit or are you building it uh, from a build and operate standpoint, meaning a passive income standpoint? You can successfully build a small group. And when I say small, I'm just thinking something between three to five locations, a small manageable group that has a healthy degree of control um, and affords you a nice lifestyle that would be arguably a bigger boat. Uh, that you can weather some of the changes that might be coming our way in the next decade to two decades and feel pretty confident um, that you could sustain some level of change within the industry that you couldn't outright control. Uh, and it may be the right time for you to do that, but I, I would say to evaluate your uh, personal commitment um, and, and the challenge that it's going to be to execute that type of growth plan and evaluate the level of risk that you're really willing to take on to do it. Um, and uh, again, those are things that we help clients with all the time um, and uh, usually can help create a clear pathway to growth. But it's something that you really have to solve for yourself, too. So I think there's, you know, as, as we sort of put a bow on things and, and try to answer this question of uh, should I build a group practice, um, uh, it, it depends. <laughs> um, and again, I, I hate saying that, but it depends on a number of things. It depends on your level of success and your lifestyle right now. It depends on your age and, and how much longer you're going to be in the profession. It depends on what your expectations are around um, potential exit, be it for a successful solo practice or for a group. Uh, it depends on whether you want to, to do something that's a lifestyle business, that's build and operate um, uh, or, or that you're confident standing pat with, uh, with what you have right now. Um, and, and really trying to quantify some of the risk and commitment around all of that. So the opportunity is there. It's a wonderful time to be in the profession. I know that the, the tides are changing a lot. And, and for those of us who've been in and around the, the business of dentistry for as long as I have, you know, over two decades now, geez. Um, but, I can say that we've seen so much change in the last decade, but I'm equally confident that the next decade is 
is going to look a lot like the last decade. So um, uh, this is the norm. Uh, it's no longer the new norm, but we should expect more of the same. And then the next question becomes, if we should expect more of the same, what are we prepared to do about it? And I think where you try to answer that question, should I or should I not build a group, really needs to start with that. Uh, and like I say, these are these are challenging questions um, uh, that sometimes involve a little bit of collaboration, a little bit of guidance from an advisor to help uh, steer you. And if we're the right resource for you, happy to talk about that on a one-on-one -on -one basis. But hopefully I've given you a, a enough uh, food for thought and things to consider and maybe a framework um, through which to consider it as you evaluate uh, your um, single or maybe two locations and, and what you want to do beyond those few locations. I hope you found uh, some of that to be educational and informative and to a degree thought provoking. And most of all, I hope you can find a, a way or an area to uh, apply it in your current business. Feel free to send me any questions and be happy to reply back or answer them on an upcoming episode. You know, you can reach me directly at Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. Thanks again for joining me on the podcast today. Before we wrap things up, I want to take a minute uh, and, and answer a question that I've gotten a, a couple of times recently uh, from some clients, um, Discovery Day clients, uh, strategic planning session clients, and, and a couple of consulting clients over about the last 90 days. I'm, I'm not sure what spurred all of this, but a number of people have asked me about uh, time management and structure. Um, and it's an interesting uh, kind of a question frankly, could potentially be a podcast episode on its own, but I'm going to try to answer it kind of quickly because I think this is really one of the challenges that we see um, our entrepreneurial dentist clients struggling with. So if you think about being an entrepreneurial dentist for a second, you are going through some journey where you are trying to uh, replace your clinical capacity with an associate or a, a junior partner uh, and you're trying to free yourself up to become a business leader. Um, we call this the founder's transition. And, and we, we mean the founder's transition like out of the chair and into a leadership role. And for some, that happens uh, quickly or abruptly. And others, it's a very gradual process that could play out over a year or more's time. Uh, and some don't uh, don't transition out of the chair 100%. Maybe they still work one day a week or one to two days a week uh, in certain scenarios uh, beyond just a fill-in capacity. So the, the time management and the structure piece uh, is really something that um, when you replace yourself in a clinical capacity, you start to free up a lot of time. Uh, and the next question is, well, how do you use that time and, and, and what do you do with it, right? And, you know, uh, it, it's challenging at multiple levels as the business grows. So, so there's not one answer at every different phase. This is really something that you should evaluate as an entrepreneur at different phases of development. And that's why I wanted to answer the question on the podcast, because it's, it's not just a canned answer that once you do it, you can forget about it. I can tell you my entrepreneurial journey has taken 
significant changes um, over the the last uh, five or six years or so. Um, and and I'm not the same entrepreneur I was when I left Patterson uh, at the end of uh, 2016. Um, I've been through different phases, different learning curves, had to reinvent myself multiple times. You should expect the same for you. Uh, and the first thing you want to do is understand the value of your time. And so as basic as this may sound, I've been through this exercise on three separate occasions, uh, and I would recommend you do the same. What I would recommend you do is ridiculous as this is going to sound, but you'll see why after you do it, is carry around a legal pad and a pen with you. And everything you do that's task-oriented, write it down on the legal pad, whether it's commuting, whether it's um, greeting the staff, um, whether it's checking emails, maybe interviewing people, reading resumes, uh, talking to banks and supply companies, uh, looking at new locations for site selection, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of the tasks that take up your time, you can start to bracket and bucket. And what do I mean by that? Not all of the tasks that you do are equally important. The same can be said, not all of the tasks you do are what's known as your unique ability. There's some things that drain the heck out of you that you would love to delegate to somebody to get rid of them. You're not any good at them. They're wasting your time. Uh, it's a friction point for you. There are other things that you are really great at, and, and they have to be uniquely yours because you make the greatest impact in the organization. And there are other things that you're really, really good at that you need to do, but they may not be the thing that gives you the most fulfillment. As you start jotting everything down on a legal pad, as you spend your time, you're going to start to bracket and bucket these into several different, probably three or four different buckets. Um, and you want to take down all of the, the tasks that you do. You want to carry around this legal pad for probably two weeks. I know that sounds like a lot, and it is. But once you do this and you keep an activity inventory, which is what we call this, an activity inventory, you will start to see where your time goes. And you'll start to understand the importance of the tasks that you do. And you'll start to be able to group them into things that you can delegate or pass off to people um, or think who, not how, and get them to, to fulfill some of that. Um, and there are things that you're going to be focused on that make greater impact for you personally and certainly for your organization. And as you start to see where you spend your time and how you can start to bracket and bucket them into different task groupings, it makes it easier to delegate stuff. Those things that you cannot delegate or that you don't have anybody you can delegate them to, my suggestion is group them all together so that you don't have to do them every day if they're not urgent. For example, I had to learn how to do this when I ran the New York, New Jersey branch for Patterson. It was a fast-paced organization. It was a really young organization. The sales team was, was relatively new for the most part. Um, and they were, uh, it was to a degree, a lot of chaos to be perfectly candid with you. It was different than the Richmond branch I had run prior to that. And it was certainly different than the Charlotte branch that I ran after that. But the time management system that I used in Richmond was absolutely not going to work in New York. 
was a totally different animal. And I had to kind of reinvent myself with it. So I started bucketing things together that I just hated doing, like approving expense uh, reports, um, processing uh, internal reports um, uh, for the business, signing off on certain things that, that required my approval and my signature, um, scheduling interviews, things along those lines. And then I had things like meeting times, meeting times with sales reps in my office, meeting times with manufacturers in my office, meeting times with third-party providers like bankers and attorneys and people like that in the industry. So I started grouping all of these together into different time blocks on different days. And then I, I got off the, the rat race scenario. The problem with trying to do everything that I just described every day at different times of every day is you feel like you get nothing done. And if you have a structure to say, I'm going to approve expense reports, but I'm going to approve all of them from 8 to 9 a.m. on Thursday morning. And whenever somebody hands in an expense report, it just goes in a file and I pull out the file at 8 a.m. on Thursday morning. Whatever's in there, I approve or I audit or go through it and I'm done with it. But I don't have to worry about it the other four days a week. If a manufacturer wants to meet with me to talk about something, well, they have two times blocked on a Tuesday or a Thursday from 1 to 3 p.m. that I've set aside for them. And my admin assistant knows to schedule them for one of those times. But I'm not chasing my tail meeting with a different manufacturer every day at a different time. So for you, as you transition out of the chair and you start to understand where your time goes and you understand what is... Uh, you know, what, what's drudgery, what grinds you down and what you hate doing, you can compartmentalize that into a time block that you don't have to worry about because it's already set aside. Everything that you're going to have to deal with then happens for one hour, you know, once a week, and then you're done with it. And the other things you can start to plan around and free up more time in your schedule to make a greater impact on the organization. And when you make a greater impact on the organization, those are going to be scenarios where you're recruiting associates, you're networking in the community to find uh, an, other practices to acquire or partner with or merge into. Um, you're, you're doing bigger things that move the needle and certainly create greater revenue opportunities um, and, and greater business growth, ultimately, that all leads to greater EBITDA improvement at a margin level or a dollar level. And that's really what you're driving at. So my advice to you around time management is and structure is first and foremost, figure out where, where you're spending your time, where it's all going. The second thing is bracket and bucket. Create a structure for it where you actually group your activities and then start to schedule those activities according to, to when you're at your most productive or least productive so that you're not having Groundhog Day every day, just doing a bunch of tasks and getting nothing done that moves the business forward. Hopefully that's helpful. I know it's a little bit long-winded. It's almost like a half of a podcast episode in and of itself, but I got this question a couple of times recently and I felt like maybe if some of our clients were asking about it, it might be helpful to some of y'all in the audience as well. So hopefully you find that uh, to be useful in, in some way. I hope you also had a lot of fun on today's episode. I always do. <laughs> so um, if you did, 
like it, uh, please do leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us uh, with SEO and, and search engine and everything like that. Or leave us a comment and um, I'll try to read it on the air. Again, if you've got questions, feel free to submit them to me directly at perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. I'll try to read and answer it in an upcoming episode. Of course, you can find out more about us and who we are, what all we do on our website. That's www.polarishealthcarepartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.